Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. Everyone is concerned that justice hasn't been served, and we want justice served. And uh, just exactly what justice uh, looks like, feels like, all the various facets of it, uh, uh, there's disagreement about that. But it's almost like everyone is saying, hey, we need justice, and justice needs to be served now. Well, in a way, that's what the book of Revelation is all about. Remember, the book of Revelation is this dream, vision, that God gave the Apostle John. And in a nutshell, it's about how God is going to make all things right. It's about how God is going to bring in justice. He is going to, uh, at some point in the future, he is going to do these things that he revealed to John when John was an old man back about 95 A.D. And uh, it's kind of interesting, as we think about uh, God serving justice and uh, meting out justice and all of that stuff, one of the things that is kind of in our view of justice, but I'm not really so sure it's in God's view of justice, but he... Uh, in a way, humors us, and uh, he does it. Uh, we always think someone needs a second chance. We think they need a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. I mean, uh, rarely do we uh, think that, uh, you know, it's one and done and send them away and lock them up for life. Uh, we always hear about, you know, oh, well, that was just a first-time offender, and so you know, they're going to give them a slap on the wrist, or maybe they're going to get probation, or they should have gotten five years, but they're probably only going to get 12 months or something like that. Or they're, instead of sending them off to the big house, they're going to send them to one of the Vicki Hornock-run little houses that, uh, you know, they have around the state. You know, I mean, we all think everyone needs a second chance. When another, you know, have they been warned? Did you warn them? Did you tell them they weren't supposed to do that? Yeah, they knew. Did you tell them a second time? You know, that's kind of what is built in there to our view of justice. Well, here's the thing that is good, and this is what we're going to see today. God, as he is meting out that justice... No one could accuse him of not getting the word out, of not delivering lots and lots and lots of warning. And so today, one of the primary things we're going to see is God's provision for getting the word out about how people should respond to his process of making all things right. So if you got a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Revelation 11. And while you're doing that, let me just throw in an advertisement. Bring your Bible to church, okay? You would do well to bring a Bible to church. If you don't want to carry, you know, one of these kinds of Bibles, make sure you got an app on your phone. Uh, you know, I use uh, uh, Bible Gateway. Vicki uses the U version. I'm sure there's two or three other apps out there that are really good, but make sure you could pull up a, a Bible 
and look at it. And by the way, if you're doing it on your phone and you want to use the, the version that I use, uh, I use a New American Standard, and uh, it's a good one, but there's lots of other good ones that would be well worth your time. But I just want to encourage you, bring your Bible to church, whether it's on your phone or in, your, uh, in a book form or whatever. And let me just tell you this, too. If you go to a church and you don't have to have a Bible and you don't have to pull it up on your phone, don't go back, okay? Honestly. No, word to the wise. If you go to a church and they're not using the Bible, okay, every once in a while they might have some missionary speaker in or someone who's mainly just telling their testimony or whatever, and so you're not going to use your Bible that day. But if you generally go to a church and they don't use the Bible, don't go back. I mean... There's plenty of great speakers out there. I can find you someone. If you want to find someone, it's just going to give you his opinion. You want someone who is going to teach you the Word of God and base the comments that he's making on the Word of God. So, I don't know, I just felt really led to say that, and so I thought of it this morning, and so I wanted to get it in there. But Revelation 11 is where we're going to be. Now, we have been going through the book of Revelation. We're calling it Jesus Revealed because the book of Revelation gives us a fresh, interesting, different perspective on just exactly who Jesus is. Far different than the what Jesus we see in the Gospels. And so we have been kind of focusing on, on what we see about Jesus. Now, as I said, it's a vision that God gave to the Apostle John when he was a really old man in prison, in fact, and uh, we're kind of in the midst of a major section of that dream, and just to kind of catch you up, okay, in chapter 4, John, in his vision, was transported up to God's throne room, and there he saw the throne of God, and in God's hand was a scroll, a document that was sealed up, and Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God, takes that scroll, and then he proceeds to, un, to break the seven seals. And with each seal, a little bit more of the document was revealed. And each part of the document that was revealed was a judgment. And there were seven primary judgments. Well, the thing that's interesting is when you got to that seventh seal, lo and behold, the seventh seal was seven more judgments. And these judgments were going to be announced by a blast of the trumpet. So we call the first seven the seven seal judgments. And then when you get to that seventh seal, you find out there's going to be seven more judgments, all announced by a trumpet. And so we call those the seven trumpet judgments. And when we get far enough down, we'll find out that the seventh trumpet judgment, it's actually seven more judgments. So uh, here we are in Revelation 11. And this is what I want you to understand is, is the six of those seven trumpet judgments have been announced and the content of them has been revealed. So we're basically between the sixth and the seventh judgment. And then in the storyline, there's kind of a big parenthesis. Or if I went backed up on the screen there, you'd see that I called it an excursus. 
kind of a, a long extended footnote of, oh, hey, here's a whole bunch of information I want to give to you. And that is in chapters 10 all the way up to chapter 15. Chapters 10 through 15 are just some, I don't want to call them random, but they kind of, from our perspective, seem like random details, information about this time period that we're going through. So the sixth trumpet is sounded, the seventh trumpet is going to sound, and God the Holy Spirit, in the dream that he was given to uh, John, kind of has him pause, and it's like, hey, I want you to tell about this, and I want you to tell about this, and I want you to tell about this. Chapter 11 is kind of like that. I mean, we're going to learn about three different things, and they're all kind of related, and we'll see a flow to it, but it's like the story isn't going to be progressed to that seventh trumpet just yet. We're actually not going to get to it until uh, for about another four weeks. But like I've done every week that we've been doing this, I want to just read you the chapter. And I know this takes a long time, but I think that it's really well worth it. And in fact, we're commanded to read it and told that we're blessed if we read it. So I think it's worth reading out loud. Let me read for you Revelation 11, verse 1. And there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and the me, obviously, is the Apostle John. There was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who are worshiping in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given over to the nations or to the Gentiles, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months." And I will grant to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire is going to proceed out of their mouths and devours those enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order to, that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, but it's the city where our Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days, and they will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth are going to rejoice over them. And they're going to make merry. And they're going to call Amazon and have gifts sent to one another. Because these two... See, I just had to wake you up. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And then after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. 
and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell upon all those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of, of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose this loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and the twelve and the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God, they fall down on their faces and worship God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty who art and who was, who has been taken, uh, thy, who's, who has taken thy great power and has begun to reign. And the nations were enraged. And thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to them, to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear the name, the small and the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was open, and, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And we'll just stop right there. So go back to verse 1. Now, essentially what, what John saw were three different things. The first thing he saw was the temple. And, and notice... Verse 1, this was a temple that was here on earth. Now, John saw this in 95 AD. This is 25 years after the temple that was existing during the time of Jesus' uh, time here on earth. It had been destroyed for 25 years. It had been non-existent. There was no temple. And yet, when John saw this vision... He saw a temple there in Jerusalem. So this is a temple that is going to be built. You know, there's never been a temple built. But every once in a while, you check some website, you hear some person talking about it. And, and you know, one of the things that Jewish people, even today, the Orthodox ones, the ones that really are monotheists, that believe in, you know, take the Old Testament seriously, it's not just their culture, like many, many Jews. Uh, they wish, they would like, supposedly some of them have done preparation to build a temple. Perhaps the temple that they will build is the temple that John is referring to here. And so he sees this temple, and, and, and someone, he doesn't identify who it was, but presumably it's probably an angel, gives him a measuring rod, a staff, and says, go measure the temple. And that seems a little odd, but 
you know, let's put ourselves back in that frame of mind. Uh, Ezekiel was told to go measure a temple. Jeremiah was told to measure a temple. Zerubbabel was told to go measure the temple. Measuring the temple is kind of like surveying your land before you make that purchase. You know, in order to buy a piece of property today, you got to have it surveyed. you got to have it measured. They want to know where the corners are so you know these are my hedges, those are his trees, that kind of stuff. It, it, it's a way to define ownership. And notice, God has John go measure just the temple itself, the place where, if you remember, the temple had two major compartments. There was the holy place where they could go into daily, and there was a lot of things in there, but a priest would go into it regularly. And then behind it was another compartment called the Holy of Holies. And that was a place they only went into once a year on the Day of Atonement. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was until it went missing. It, 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 it's the place that, that was marked off by that huge curtain or veil that supposedly took, you know, 50 or 60 priests to hang it. It was so heavy. It's the one that split in two when Jesus died on the cross because of the earthquake that accompanied his crucifixion. That's the Holy of Holies. And so John was instructed to go measure the temple proper. It was, it was the holy place and the holy of holies because God was saying, that's my place. But look at the rest of the verses there in verse 2. It says, but you don't have to measure the courtyard because I've given the courtyard over to the Gentiles, to the nations, and they're going to have control of it for 42 months. It's kind of interesting. A lot of people want to say, okay, this is a vision. You can't really take it too literally and all that stuff. You know, but, you know, every once in a while it throws in these specifics and you, you kind of get the impression, okay, 42 months. I mean, that's three and a half years. That kind of seems like an important thing. Maybe God really is referring to a specific season that lasts for 42 months. I think he is. I think he's referring to the, 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 what Daniel referred to as the 70th week. Daniel 9, I think it's referring to that seven-year period of time we call the tribulation, and this is going to be the second half of it, the 42 months that are there. So that's the temple. Look down at the verse 3. He now starts to talk about the witnesses. We've probably all heard about this. He says in verse 3, and I'm going to grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days. 1,260 days. I wonder how many months are, would make up 1,260 days. 42 months. So it kind of seems like he's referring to the same time period, which in my estimation would be the second half of the tribulation, the second half of Daniel's 70th week. But these two witnesses have been given authority. And look at verse 4. And these two are the olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And, of course, you're all saying, oh, yeah, I remember back in August when Richard preached on Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 4 and, and Joshua the high priest was one of the lampstands and Zerubbabel the king was another one of those lampstands. And, boy, this is like, you know, deja vu all over again. I mean, we got, we got two witnesses here, two people that are supposed to be lights 
to the nations of what God's truth is. Just like Zerubbabel and Joshua were supposed to do that 2,500 years ago, these two guys are going to do it still at some time in the future. Here's these two witnesses. And wow, they're, they're empowered. They've got the oil of God inside of them. Verse 5, and, and look at the power they have. And if anyone desires to harm them, I think the Living Bible says they will be toast. I think it says, uh, I mean, fire's going to proceed out of their mouth. I mean, that's just kind of like what Elijah did to, uh, you know, the uh, Syrian army when they came and asked him to come and meet with the king. And he said, I ain't going. And he toasted 50 of them three times, three different groups of 50. Fire proceeds out of their mouth. Man, if anyone wants to do harm to them, they can get them back. In this manner, he must be killed. These people have, have so much power and authority from God, they can do like what Elijah did, and they can shut up the skies for three and a half years, and it doesn't rain. They can do like Moses did. They can turn water into blood. Jesus turned it into wine, but Moses had the authority to turn it into blood. These guys have a lot of power. Everyone loves to ask, now, who are they? Well, they do things like Elijah. They do things like Moses. Maybe it's Elijah and Moses. Maybe. Maybe not. Oh, well, everybody's supposed to die. Elijah, he got to ride the chariots of fire up to heaven, so he didn't have to die. And there's uh, Richard's great-great-great-great-grandfather, Enoch Hornock. He, he just walked with God, and one day they never found him again. He didn't die, so maybe it's Elijah and Enoch. But uh, no, I, you know, most likely we don't have the slightest clue. I mean, we love to sit and talk about it, but it's really irrelevant just exactly who they were because the main thing about them is they've got this authority and they've got this responsibility and power to get the word out that people need to come to God. And they need to recognize their sin. They need to repent. But when that time is done, what time? The 42 months, the 1260 days. Look at verse 7. And when they finished their testimony, the beast. Wow, we've never even heard of a beast yet. I mean, we all know about the beast because we've read this book and seen the movies and all that stuff. But here at chapter 11, this is the first time John even refers to a beast. Of course, he's going to tell about it in chapter 13. And, you know, we might talk about that next week or the next week. But for now, we'll just call him the beast. When these two have finished their testimonies, the beast, who I'll just tell you is the Antichrist, the beast will come up out of the abyss and he's going to make war with them and finally somebody's going to be able to kill them, overcome them and kill them. And where's all this going to happen? It's going to happen the place where we crucified the Lord. That's Jerusalem. Code for Sodom, code Egypt, but it's Jerusalem where also the Lord, their Lord was crucified. Verse 9. Well, how are people going to respond when, you know, the leader of the world kills these two guys? 
I mean, what, what about free speech? What about, I thought, you know, what, where'd the First Amendment go? Or is it the Second Amendment? First Amendment, you can say anything you want. I mean, what, what happened to all that stuff? How are people going to respond? Is there going to be huge protests that he killed these people? No. They're not even going to bury the guys. The guys are going to lay there dead for three and a half days, and every guy is going to see them. People are going to be able to see them. You know, I used to wonder, man, when I was a kid and I'd read this passage, and I was 10, 12, 13 years old, and I'd wonder, how in the world is that going to happen? Because, you know, as a kid, I'd watch the news, and that was when Vietnam was raging, and I'd find on the news these clips of what happened three days ago in Vietnam. And I'm like, shazam, wow, on the other side of the world, I can find out what happened just three days ago. Who knows what's happened today? I'll, I don't know. I probably won't know that till Tuesday or Wednesday, but that's happening. Well, isn't it amazing what technology has done? I mean, honestly, if there was something significant happening in Paris, not Paris, Texas, but Paris, France, all of us that have a smartphone... I won't name the one person that doesn't have a smartphone, but, but all of us that have a smartphone, because we log into FBC Worship, the free Wi-Fi here at Fellowship Bible, all of us could watch that happen in Paris. And man, if we were so happy about it, like these people would be so happy about it, we could multitask. And we could get on Amazon, and literally we could have a gift delivered to our kids there in Dallas. You know, here in Texarkana, you can't get it till the next day. But in Dallas, I mean, you pick the right gift. It could be at George and Jordan's apartment by 5 o'clock this afternoon. I mean, all of this stuff is, is saying here. And, and interestingly, is this how it's going to work? I don't know. But it's interesting that it could work. It could work that way because people are going to be rejoicing over them and how the fact that they are dead. But then look at verse 11. This is so fascinating because God's in control. After three and a half days, the breath of life comes back into them. They rise from the dead and they are snatched away to heaven. And everyone sees it on their phone. And they're terrified. And they are giving glory, but I don't think it's this positive glory. They are just saying, whoa, God is at work. And so in verse 14, John says, okay, now you've seen the first woe, you've seen the second woe. The third woe is going to come. What's the third woe? It's that seventh trumpet. Remember, trumpet five, trumpet six, trumpet seven were also called the woes. You get that back in, I think, uh, chapter eight. Or, or, excuse me, chapter nine. Well, again, we're just kind of in a pause here. We're just getting random details. Well, what's going to happen after these guys get snatched and taken back to heaven? Well, that's when the kingdom's going to start because we're at the end of that seven-year period. Wait a minute, you haven't even told us about the seventh trumpet. Yeah, I'll get to it in chapter 16, but uh, let me just finish this thought, John says. And let me, give, give me, humor me for another four, four or five verses. 
And he says, when that kingdom starts, even though in the storyline, you know, we're only a thir- two thir- halfway through the book, when that kingdom starts, here's what the voices in heaven are going to be saying. See, it's in verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you know what I think the honest way to understand this is not that this is some mystical, non-literal thing. I think this is a real kingdom here on earth. I mean, these were real deaths. These were real people who got killed, who really died, who really came back to life, who really got snatched to heaven. This is a real kingdom, a literal kingdom. You're going to learn in chapter 20 that it's going to last a thousand years. This is referring to kind of a foreshadowing, if you will, of the millennial kingdom. I know we're not there in the story yet. We're still in the story just between 6th and 7th trumpet. But they're rejoicing because now it's no longer going to be the kingdom of man. It's going to be the kingdom of God. And like all those prophecies in the Old Testament talk about, Jesus himself is going to be reigning. The son of David, sitting on the throne of David. And the 20, up in heaven, the 24 elders are going to say, yes. They're going to say, we give thanks. This is verse 17. We give thanks, O God, the Almighty, who art and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Finally, we're getting to that utopia that the whole Old Testament looked forward to. When the lion and the lamb lie down together, when I can leave my kids out there near all the snake holes and none of the snakes come and bite them. The nations, however, verse 18, they don't like this, that Jesus is in charge. And he said, up in heaven, man, when I, when I saw all of this going on on earth, I looked up in heaven to the temple that was up there. I even saw the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody had seen the Ark of the Covenant in John's day for six, seven hundred years. Then disappeared before Nebuchadnezzar even came to town. So, quick, quick survey through the book, or through the chapter. Talked about the temple, those witnesses, and we got a quick preview of the kingdom, of how it's going to happen. Just some random things that God, the Holy Spirit, wanted John to throw in here in the storyline. And so like we always like to do is ask, okay, so what? Why did I need to know this? Why did God, the Holy Spirit, put this chapter in the book? What is it I'm supposed to make of it? Well, you know, I think it's, it's, it's one of these uh, chapters that I think really, really and truly adds to, to the grid through which we look at life. I think it, 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 it's like lenses. You know, when you go to the eye doctor, sometimes he'll, he'll put different lenses in front of your eyes, and sometimes he'll line up two or three lenses because... This lens did this, and this lens did this, and this did li- lens did that. And so when you finally get your glasses, it's all one lens, but it's those three lenses all compressed together. And that's what makes it so you can see to be able to read or drive or do whatever you need to do. 
I mean, I think the main so what of this chapter, besides just a lot of good information, I think it, it's supposed to help us have a better perspective. And let me just point out three things, three lenses, if you will, to look through. First, notice, and we're going to kind of go backwards in the chapter, start at the end and work our way back towards the, the, the middle at least. Notice how when God takes over, now we all, because we have trusted Jesus Christ, because we have a relationship with God, because hopefully we are new creations in Christ, we're going to rejoice. But what do the nations do? They rage. You know, I think it speaks. See that? See that in verse 18? The nations were enraged. I mean, when these, these two witnesses finally were killed after three and a half years, they were celebrating. It was like Christmas. Man, I, this is so wonderful. Let's, let's send the kids a, a, a gift. Let, let's get them a gift card so they can go out to dinner tonight, you know? They were celebrating because they thought God was defeated, if you will. The nations are enraged. Our don't ever estimate the sinfulness of mankind. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And here, as I've said many times, I mean, we still have that heart. Yes, God gave us a new heart, but he didn't take the old heart out. And you and I have that propensity to sin, and that's why we've got to be disciplined and discipled in our relationship with Jesus Christ so that we don't serve the flesh. Remember the Apostle Paul in Revelation or in Romans 7 talked about the things I want to do, I never do them. And the things I don't, don't want to do, I end up doing them all the time. It's like this war internally. And when you and I are, are seeking to serve the Lord, we've got that, 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 that war going on, the flesh. Don't underestimate the sinfulness that we're born with. Don't understand, underestimate the sinfulness of human beings. You know, we're living in a time when, man, we have seen so much change. I mean, just culturally, we're just running away from our biblical roots as fast as we possibly can. And, and I think sometimes we're all are saying, how could people believe this? The truth of the matter is they can believe it because they have not been regenerated by the blood of Jesus Christ and the life of the Holy Spirit within them. And no wonder they're embracing what just seems so abominable. Uh, don't under, that, that needs to be there with all that God does throughout the book of Revelation. And we just got a little snippet of it here. Man doesn't like it. Let me get you to look through a second lens. Yeah, there's that sin, but there also is that sovereignty. I mean, this thing happened exactly as God wanted it to happen. It's like God was not caught off guard. These, these, these witnesses, he had empowered them to have complete and total control. And it wasn't until they had finished their work that the beast, who we'll learn about in a couple weeks, 
was able to finally kill them. I'm sure he wanted to kill them for three and a half years. But finally he was able to. Why did it take so long? Because God is in control. And you know, you and I, I mean, that, that, that just the sovereignty of God. There are so many things we don't understand. There's so many things we don't like. There's so many things that we think it could be so much better if, 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 if. And you just got to go throw yourself on the sovereignty of God. Why did God do that? We may never know. We might not even find out up in heaven. Well, we think in heaven we'll see everything and understand everything. I don't know. I'm not sure there's those guarantees. We'll never understand God because we will never be God. But we know that we have a God who is in control and he is holy and righteous and just and merciful and compassionate and all of that stuff. I mean, understand your sin, understand human beings' sin, but understand God's sovereignty. And then here's one more. And that is, notice that even with all this rejection, and because he, he is God and he knows the beginning from the end, he knew exactly how people would respond to his two witnesses, his olive branches, his lamp stands, these two men that he raises up and empowers to, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. He knew they'd be rejected. And yet, in his grace, he still sent them out. God is constantly giving opportunity. Uh, yeah, there's a few verses that indicate that there's a last opportunity. But we never know when that is, and we're not God to say, oh, that was his last opportunity. He's toast from now on. You don't know, but we have a God that is gracious. I, I, as you look at this passage, and a lot of fun facts to, to, to go at and things to track down, you know, maybe you'll find the verse that says, oh, it really is Moses and Elijah, or Enoch and Elijah. Or someone else. But really and truly, the main thing is this should add to your worldview. And it really should add at least three things a view of sin, a reminder of God's sovereignty, and a reminder of God's grace. God has offered salvation. God is always at the ready to forgive his children. Discipline, yes. Consequences, yeah. But he is always ready to provide that grace, to come home, to, to, to hear that voice while we're in the pig pen saying, come on home. I want to welcome you. I want to put a robe on your back and ring on your finger. And I want to kill the fatted calf and celebrate you coming home. That's the grace of God. And you know what? If you've trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, I mean, if there's one thing that each and every one of us need to do, it is to continually remember 
the grace that God has extended to us. You know, I mean, maybe your story is like my story. And, you know, I was saved from a life of sin when I was five years old. I mean, you know, it's just like, okay. But, you know, often I'll think of what God saved me from, what I could have been. Maybe some of you didn't have that privilege and you weren't saved until you were 55 and you have those things that I could have done. That's God's grace. God is a God who has a redeeming love for you, for me. And you know, I I wanted us to, to close our time today by just taking the Lord's table because there's really no better way for us to remember the the incredible love and graciousness that God has for us than remembering what communion's all about, what the Lord's table's all about. We take bread, and we're going to drink some grape juice out of the cup, and, and those things really and truly have two major things that God has reminded us of. The fact that Jesus took our place, and in so doing, gave us forgiveness. He died on the cross for me. He died on the cross for you. And in so doing, I'm forgiven. Completely and totally forgiven in front of God. As far as the east is from the west, so God has removed my sins from him. That's what he's done for you. When you trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, God forgave you. Jesus Christ had taken your place, and you got credit for what he did there on Calvary. So we're going to partake of uh, the table here. I'm going to invite the guys that uh, have been asked to distribute it to uh, come. And let's just bow our heads and pray. And then hold the elements uh, till we're all, we all have some and we'll partake together here in a moment. Father, I thank you so much that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I thank you, Father, in your sovereignty, you knew it all. You knew how wretched we were or how wretched we could have become. Father, in your love, you sent your only begotten Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Father, I thank you that we who are here today, who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, we can truly celebrate the love and the grace that you have for us. Father, you've given us a tangible way to... uh, remember it and uh, it's through your table and so in these next few moments Father as we eat this bread and drink this cup I pray Father that our hearts and minds truly would be uh, reminded that incredible love you have for us that incredible grace that you've extended to us for it's in Jesus name Amen.
take the bread of life broken for all my sins